Welcome to another episode of the show, and thanks for being here. Today's guests are David Weck and Chris Chamberlain. Together, they are the brains behind the Weck Method system of training and human performance. David Weck is an inventor, a biomechanist. He's been a two-time guest on this show. And David's vision for human movement has had a really big impact on my own journey in coaching and training. Chris Chamberlain is the head coach at WEC Method, and he's also the director of education. Chris is adept in a number of strength skills. He has a diverse movement background. Chris has a creative mind in coaching and exercise adaptation, but he's also practical and pragmatic, and he distills complex movement ideas down into the training roadmap. David and Chris's minds complement each other well, and this was a really information-dense and fun conversation as we talked about tool usage in human movement, integrating rotation and coiling into more mainline strength movements. We had a great chat on concepts of the foot. We talked about innate movement patterning in respect to training volume and a whole lot more. This was a really fun chat. And as I mentioned in the show early on, I had a full page of handwritten notes written uh, very early in the episode already. So I'm excited to get this show to you guys. Before we get started, a few things to highlight. One is that my new online course, Sprint Acceleration Essentials, is here. I'm really proud of this one. This course addresses sprinting on the level of movement principles, skill building, and then a constraint-based approach to emphasize the linear and rotational aspects of sprinting and acceleration. This course also has awesome bonus content on game speed adaptations from Austin Yoakum and Jamie Smith, and I'm really excited for you to check it out. You can find it on JustFlySports.com. Our second item is highlighting our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out Performance Herbalism for free, you can get started with one of their flagship products, Pine Pollen, for only the normal modest cost of shipping. Lost Empire Herbs has been a game changer in my own nutritional approach. I absolutely love having the principles of nature firsthand in my supplementation regime. When we think of herbalism, sometimes we think of that bottle of Jinko Biloba at the drugstore, but as Logan Christopher, the CEO of Lost Empire says, these are not your grandpa's herbs. These are amazing for vitality, energy, and even facilitating strength gains. I love that they're a sponsor of the show, and I hope you get a chance to check them out. So if you want that free sample of pine pollen, head to justflypinepollen.com. And again, you can get your free bag with only the modest cost of shipping. That being said, let's get on to the episode with David Weck and Chris Chamberlain. David, Chris, uh, great to have you guys on the show. And I'm curious, how did you two originally meet? Like, what is the backstory behind you guys getting together, training, and everything that's come from that? Yeah, I mean, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, I mean, we're both here in uh, San Diego. It was a good friend of ours that sort of connected us, kind of could tell there was something maybe worth putting together. And I'd actually come down here to the lab and uh, right in downtown San Diego and met with Dave for like 30, 40 minutes or so. And uh, he was showing me what the coil was at that time and a little drill he was doing. I think it was the heavy band, like bouncing the kettlebell or something just to get me anchored and rooted in my lap. And he was talking to me about running and telling me this thing was going to make me like super fast, as Dave does. And uh I had this feeling in my low lat, and I went back to the gym right after talking to him. And I'm a big kettlebell guy. That's kind of been my career. It's my little niche. And I'm really into bent pressing, so single arm overhead lift, famous Arthur Saxon lift, thing like that. And um, I had instantly set like a 40, 45-pound PR in my overhead bent press just, just from learning a little drill from him. In a meeting, he was talking to me about running faster. So 
I think that's going to be a highlight and a thing we talk about a lot today is a lot of our training, while it's like going to be geared towards this idea of like moving faster on the ground, things like that, we're also going to be getting like incredibly strong in a lot of our lifts and the carryover is going to be everywhere. So that was like the big, like, I got to come in, I got to mind meld with this guy and we got to figure out how to, to get this information out to people. Yeah. And then what I would add on to that is the next thing. So the next session where we got together, that's when I introduced him to the ropes. Mm. And Chris is someone who his integrity for results, he's agnostic to all things except for what does this do? And so he devoured the ropes. So he put in his 10,000 reps within the first week. And then I would see the video of what he's doing. And that excites me because if you like my work and you practice it, well, then I'm going to keep feeding you. And so what the ropes did, it's sort of the Rosetta Stone of integration, timing of, of the system globally. And because he was able to feel that and the, and the benefit of that, it was a situation where all the other things that he had done, and he had done a wide array of things, all those silos, suddenly they were networked together. And then like, oh, this discipline in gymnastics and oh, this discipline over here and this discipline, I can, I can connect the dots where every discipline now feeds the other disciplines. And so it began with the royal coil and sort of getting that lumbodorsal fascia and the back two quadrants, not just the front two quadrants are now engaged. And so we have that fundamental ability to optimize one side, optimize the other side bilaterally. Now I get more pack and I get all that stuff. So he's able to make strength gains, but he's learning how to funnel it to the floor with that efficiency. So you're delivering everything and nothing is getting stuck in the compensatory cycle of, oh, if it's not all funneling to the floor, well, some of it's stuck and some of it is unproductive. It's essentially protective. And so that really started it. And this was a situation where I was like, oh, my God, finally, I found my counterpart, someone who's he's younger than me. He's stronger than me. He's faster than me. And he's a programming guy. He's a coach. And then he was working with an ultimate Frisbee team. And suddenly this ultimate Frisbee team is like everybody's faster. They're all <laughs> double down and with pulsers. They're all learning ropes. And so, like, I'm not a programming guy. Like, I'm just not. Like, you know, that's not how I've made my living. And I've had the leeway, given that I don't have to, to, to create a full-on deliverable with the cohesion of a beginning, middle, and end. I'm just parts. So I say, you know, better ingredients. And then he's a chef who can compile the better ingredients. And because of his physical prowess that is superior to mine, he is able to actualize the practice of my principles to a further extent than I can personally. So he's able to feel and sense things that I will never get to because I don't have, you know, the brawn that he does, but he's also got an excellent brain. And I'll never forget, I come into the lab early on, okay, and he looked me dead set in the eye and he goes, the first thing I'm coming in the lab, he goes, I have felt the coil deeper than you will ever feel the coil. 
And I'm just like, you know, I'm like stunned. Like, wait a minute, wait, <laughs> what are you talking? <laughs> so I think that the good humor involved in it, but the efficacy and the reality is what we're always anchored to. And when we created WEC method together, it was a whiteboard. Chris would ask me a question and distill it down to, okay, I need three bullet points. And then when we got down, because one of our mantras is to the extent possible, we want the tool to be the teacher. We want to do less with words. Yeah. And what we want to do is get someone to feel it so they understand it implicitly rather than us trying to explain something, taking a lot of time and having the person miss the mark. So what we had to do, if we're going to talk about the fundamental tools, is we have to have 100% integrity. So some branded, patented product can't be the fundamental. So, you know, what does that mean? So now it's instantly suspect. So what we did was we distilled it down to sticks, stones, and ropes. Because I believe that in the human saga, it began with sticks, it evolved to stones, and then it was leveraged and fortified and, and tied together by the cordage, by the rope. And if you just look at tools and weaponry, You've got a stick, which is a club and a spear. Okay, that's the most important thing. You don't even have to fashion it. You'll find a straight stick and <laughs> it is sharp in the end. A stone is highly functional to crack open, you know, the, the walnut that you couldn't otherwise get to, and you can project the stone as well. But then the rope gives you a bow and arrow. The rope gives you, you know, a sling. So that's yeah, the first axe is basically a stick that's leveraged out, you know, with a stone and a hard, sharper object at the end that's more durable. And that became our, our sort of foundation is the manipulation of the fundamental tools. And human beings are fundamental tool users. And he comes from carpentry. And he's the one who taught me you never bash any tool. I don't care about the Suzanne Summers thigh master. There's something useful that you could do with that implement besides just squeezing your legs together, right? So it really is the user who defines the utility of a tool in the manner in which they manipulate it. And Chris really gave me a, a profound appreciation of that. And to the person, oh, you know, I like natural. Like, I don't want to have to rely on dumbbells or whatever. It's like, okay, well, how did you cook your coffee this morning? How do you eat your soup? Like, you know, cups and bowls and fire and, you know, coffee cup. Those are the tools that allow us to, to not just, you know, drink water out of a stream, you know, with our mouth. So I think the, the most natural thing that we are as human beings is innovators. And that is why we were able to leverage technology to, you know, enhance the creature comforts and the creature capacity to be more successful. And so... We always want to get back to first principles because that's the thing that will never change. So we don't want to base it upon something that is, you know, not rooted to the first principles. And so that integrity is what has allowed us to really what we believe is arrive at X on the map where you don't change X because you can't change X. You just drill deeper into X. And that is really responsible for the efficacy that. Essentially, you know, we, we just have success stories. I mean, you just, okay, wherever you are, we're going to fortify the foundation to build whatever it is you want. 
to, to focus this on. And it's Bruce Lee. Absorb what's useful, discard what's not, and then add what is uniquely your own. You know what I mean? Like cheat torque. A lot of that came from the inspiration of these principles that Chris and DJ now worked on to create this very interesting, useful system. And then Julian Panache is another guy who he really, he really gave us a, a real good appreciation of you know, this fire and ice, the yin, the yang, the internal and the external. And what we did was we really used that model of identifying the, the, the musculature and the parts and which tendency are those parts on the internal or the external. And then really what we did was we then coiled according to those fire and ice, and we call it internal and external torsion. So, and we'll get into what we believe about rotation as we get into this, but that's how we met. Yeah, and, essentially met yeah. because I needed to help organize this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we're going to get more into like how we apply this stuff, what it means to, if you're out there doing some traditional strength training program, how we're not much different than that in some regards. So yeah, real quick, real quick. <laughs> I was up with Dwayne Carlisle at the San Francisco 49ers back in like 2009 or eight or something. And he and I brought big ropes and sticks and I was working with the offensive linemen where the battle of the hands is really what sets the stage. If you're going to win or not, it's hands and feet for an offensive lineman. And so I'm teaching them the hands and then, <laughs> you know, I'm doing my thing. And I started talking about chi, right? And he pulled me aside. He goes, dude, don't talk about chi. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you're going you're gonna to scare these guys away. <laughs> yeah, you almost need a different word for it, depending on the situation. Uh, I was going to say something that you were talking about, and back to maybe five minutes ago or so, you talked about the tool being the teacher. And I think about, and this kind of goes with what you're talking about, with just basically feeling the method. Like, Chris, you had talked about like feeling the coil, feeling your lat. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate so much in the process of training and learning from people and people who have a real deep knowledge of the body is it doesn't start or breakthroughs athletically don't start because you read something that was quantitative. It doesn't start because someone told you a position that you really needed to be in or explained to you a technical model. And I'm not saying those things don't have value. But what I found is that the breakthroughs come because you feel something and it felt good. And like you said, David, it puts a smile on your face. And then you go do something and it's better. And I think there's value to both, obviously. But I just think we so value, so value the more the quantitative things that you could explain in scientific terminology that I don't think we nearly appreciate the journey of exploring and feeling and then doing with that feeling enough. I mean, that's Seth Lintz, the the pitching doctor who goes by the pitching doctor was on a few episodes ago talking about that, how it is ultimately starting with a feeling. And, and that leads me to, you said, um, I, I love this, let the tool be the teacher. And I'd heard something about, and I, I mean, this is obviously true, is something that makes us uniquely, uniquely human is our ability to use tools. I mean, obviously, I think there's like monkeys can do rudimentary things or things like that, very basic, but we've taken it to the point of we would call technology. And it's almost like there's two ways you can go. You have the tech way, which we think, I think that's what most people think. If you said humans and technology, you would think, ah, wearables and track my sleep and blah, blah, you know, all that. But to me, I'm like, that is a lot of things that a lot of technology also lives 
at least partially in the intellectual land. Whereas what lives in the body is, like you said, it's sticks, it's stones, it's things that are innately wired into how we move. And I just think that, I don't know, call me a, fundam- a movement fundamentalist, <laughs> but you can't, you can't escape that part of who we are. And I also think, think there's a beauty in just how simple it is. It's like uh, Dan John says, simple but not easy. Like a rope, a stick, you know, a stone. These are simple things, but they're not necessarily easy in how you end up using them. So, I just think there's a lot of beauty in that. But I also think that you, you talk about first principles and I just think understanding what do you say when you mean technology, a lot of us will go right to more the, the data point side. But part of that a tech or a tool is also what we've as humans learned for eons to use these things and made it part of our movement, our embodiment. And I just think that's a real cool way of framing it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm a results rules guy. And what I say, you know, maybe some people don't know this reference, but I do from, you know, being born in the seventies is Dumbo, the Disney character can fly if he holds a feather. And I don't care that that doesn't make sense. If he's flying because he's holding a feather, he's flying. And that's all to me that matters. Like, I, you know, it doesn't have to make sense even if the reality has been changed and you get a superior result. And obviously, it's a fictional story, but it does speak to the idea that psychology, you know, the, the mother who lifts the car off of her child can't deadlift 200 pounds. But the psychology and the need in that moment releases the governor of self-protection Suddenly, you know, she does what needs to be done because psychologically the power of the mind is so much stronger and more powerful than we can comprehend. So, again, it's always back to the results that rule. And if it is something that you don't understand, but you're getting a greater result, that is rationale and justification to now ask the questions again to drill deeper to understand why you're getting a superior result. And once you have the understanding, that is now principle. And all we do is tools are teachers and we practice principles. And if you come to our certification, Chris will say, we are going to do the same thing over and over and over in different ways with different modalities. And, uh, we're talking about tools and stuff too. And Dave mentioned I was a carpenter. I, my dad's a carpenter. I grew up in a family of carpenters and I've worked probably till I was 26, 27 doing carpentry. And there was an odd little phenomenon I noticed with all the guys we were working with, my dad in particular, is we all sort of started like framing houses with hammers and nails. And we were all very good at swinging tools and implements and all very healthy and strong. And we started getting more efficient with technology and using things like nail guns. And we stopped having to swing our arms. We started getting up in weird little positions we wouldn't normally get in to like get the job done. But like you'd start noticing like my dad and a lot of the guys on the job side, they're a little older. They started having a lot of like health problems and shoulder issues and like started losing a lot of that fundamental first principle thought process because they weren't using the bodies the same way. So I don't know, just something to think about. It's a simple little thing, but like, I always found that very interesting. I, I find that that is awesome. And it, it kind of fits too. And I think we'll, we were going to get into this anyways, but maybe this can be a precursor to whatever question I had lined up. But I think a lot of times when we think of strength and fitness, it is in this neat little box. It's like 
three sets of 10, five sets of 10 or whatever. I'm, I'm actually alluding to higher volumes, but when you're doing construction, it's not, you're not thinking three sets of 10. It's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reps. And it's hundreds of reps in a way that's very natural, like a way that the body is meant to move and work. And like you talk, we're talking about sticks and stones. In some ways, a hammer is an iteration of those things. Chris, when I look at your workouts, you post, you do a lot of reps. Like it's, it's a lot more than I think a lot of people. And I guess maybe in the world of kettlebell, there's just a lot of reps in that too. And that's not a sport I've competed in or spent much time in, but I do want to get to the strength piece as well. But Chris, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on like set and rep ranges when you're starting to move in a different way. Because I think yeah, actually this is great because like I love that you're talking about like that daily like the way I train personally and how I work with athletes is I like to think of it as just like they always need to be ready. I particularly don't like to do big phases where we'll build up to like peak performance. I want to keep like a constant high level performance. So my athletes eighty percent is your athletes hundred percent when they peak type thing. And the reason for that it comes a lot from being a carpenter and. In my family, I was the smallest of the three of us working on the job site. So I had to be efficient and I had to keep up and in some cases outperform in that realm. And you had to be ready for it every day and you didn't always know exactly what you were ready for. So there was some variability in that, but you were working at a high level. So I treat the gym and the volume and the repetition of things. I like volume. I think it's important. I like dispersing the volume with intensity. So we will do like really high intensity things like 90 percent intensity something like that like close to maximal efforts and i'll I'll set that at a lower volume but i might use a similar patterning to uh, improve volume on that as well so i'll I'll work in patterns we we build a lot of volume through patterns and we vary intensities but I, i believe lots of volume is important because that's how you create consistency that's how you create repetition of things that's how you create a skill set in things And when we're talking about like carryover to athletics or specific sports and things like that, the gym is not what we're looking to get the carryover in. The movements in the gym are meant to help us create intensity and volume and practice positional work and things of that nature to get that carryover to what we're trying to actually get better at. Well, and then let me add to that, that one of the things that Chris had to do was carry four by eight plywood. And I learned something. Because if you're going to carry it all day, you're going to reach insights as opposed to, oh, I'm just going to move this thing 40 feet over there. And what I was doing to carry a piece of plywood was I'd get in the coil, one hand over top, holding it on the side, you know, the opposite side. And I was supinating the down hand. And turns out that's not how you carry plywood all day. You have to pronate to create the length. And one of the things about volume is you develop man-strong, connective tissue strong. So the guy who's just squeezing grippers versus the mason who's picking up Belgian blocks and doing this, when you shake their hand, the guy who's worked with Belgian blocks the past 30 years, there is a strength that cannot be gained by 10 sets of whatever. It's, it's the repetition and it's the connective tissue that now everything is fortified by that. And so we always look at how can we optimize the connective tissue? And that, of course, is fascia at the fundamental level because, you know, the four layers of fascia that surround and separate everything, that's how we get the maximum integration. So we use the terminology longest and strongest 
And locomotion for us, it's not just bipedal, it's swimming through the fluid medium. It's brachiation in the air with the hands. And a lot of this derives in terms of longest. If you're hanging from a branch or a ring, to the extent that there is muscular contraction, you're tiring out. So what you need is you need the fascial integration to be the longest. And now that becomes something that removes slack from the system. And so when there's no slack in the system, one end moves, the whole thing moves. But if there's slack, you get that like picture, you know, towing the Jeep with a winch out of the mud. If you don't take slack out of the line, the Jeep will stay in the mud and the front end will get pulled off the, <laughs> off the Jeep. <laughs> so that is something that I appreciate those I can learn from. And, that, and, and those who have had the personal experience can speak outside the realm of theoretical where you're not forced to truly do the thinking, which is the doing. I love what you said about the insight via repetition. Because I, I get, I go back to, I keep going back to like, well, how do we know things? How do we learn things? So often it's, well, someone else said it was like this, so I'm going to try to do this. But then the, on the other side of the coin, it's, well, get in your own body. And if you do enough repetitions, you're going to start to feel fatigue and you're going to be forced to do it a different way. Like you said, with the carrying the plywood, you were fatigue uh, force and repetition forced you. And you know, even as you were talking, David, I, I was thinking as well about, I, I've already taken like a page of notes since we started. I was thinking about rock climbing. Like you said, when I rock climb, I rock climbed for about two years, like rapidly before my uh, daughter was about four months. And then she cried too much in her stroller and me and my wife couldn't climb anymore. <laughs> we basically had to, all right, I, and that's okay. Maybe I'll get back to it at some point. But I found in that time, climb, rock climbing, uh, I had those little Captain to Crush Gripper things. And I mean, at the time at my peak, and I was obviously doing no grip training, but I could almost close the two and a half, which is not amazing. If you close the three, you get your name on their list. You know, Chris, you probably did. Have you done that? I'm a three. Nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, <laughs> name all those. I don't care. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I the two and a half. Anyways, uh, with that, I found that there's no way I, I feel like I could have been like if I just was like, all right, I'm just going to practice this. I'm going to do three sets of five, you know, twice a week or something. There's no way I could have gotten as strong on that gripper as if I had just went out and rock climbed. And within that rock climbing, even it's almost like you have this this quadrant that I just I just kind of jotted down. But it also reminds me of uh, Mickey Mantle. There was at least I only found this written somewhere. I haven't found like the actual historical account. Someone had mentioned this and written about this a while ago. He did grow up, I think, in Oklahoma. There was like rock mining there, and he grew up. And this is a guy who hit like the farthest unofficial home run of all time. He hit like the lights at. I forget what stadium it was, but it was it was a rocket. And they were saying that part of him growing up was like he was a rock miner. It'd basically be, here's your uh, sledgehammer, hit the rocks till you're tired, give the hammer to your buddy, hit the rocks till you're tired. And I almost think there's like four things within that. And I had one was just reps or volume. Another is variability. You don't hit it the exact same way every time or you're going to hurt yourself. I'm sure, Chris, you probably had, you know, with the construction too, you probably do have to, you know, maybe do something, hit the hammer a little different way. Yeah, yeah. A big, a big, I'll just mention this real quick. I, I did a lot of research on Arthur Jones, who created like oh, yeah. Atlas. Yeah, so he, a lot of his early like thought process, from my understanding, is that he was very big on not developing skill set. So a lot of that early machine, like running the line, was sort of meant to not get you good at it and just get the pump or whatever. Yeah. So you're not getting good at the gym. You're getting good for things that matter type thing and adding that variability. So changing 
that uh, the way you do the patterns or things like that constantly. So I kind of I kind of love that to be honest. Yeah, constant varied movement. Yeah, could you actually? So I, 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 it's like I didn't want to finish my little square that I wrote down, but I actually wanted to go a little bit more into that because I do find that intriguing just for a moment. Because I, I mean, I look at that like high intensity training. Like some people do hit training with pro teams and actually get like pretty good in terms of injury rates. But it's almost like we'll just do one set, get a pump, and then go do all your other stuff outside of it. You know, like that mentality. Can you explain again what you meant with the variability within that? Because I think changing so, the so muscle like, environment. I, I believe like when he was doing like, I'm trying to remember, it's like the Colorado experiment. I think that's what they called it, where he was taking these guys where they put on like 30 pounds of mass in a month or six weeks or something like that. And they basically like, if they had to squat or hinge or press or whatever every week and every other day or whatever, they never did it the same way twice. Oh, got it. So, so they were using the tissue, but they were challenging it in a different way. So they didn't get good at things in the gym. I didn't go in and do the same bench press every got three it. days. So it wasn't just a matter of the change in intensity, right? Or, or the volume of it. It was actually changing the pattern in a way similar to like hitting a rock with a hammer with just it's not the same hit every time yeah. there's a variance to it and it allows it allows for the accruement of more volume or repetition which actually gets the tissue better at a skill set not a specific task like I, w- I, w- I would use the term bandwidth yeah, yeah sure so you know it, it's sort of you do you want to go in parallel or do you want to go in series and you know if you go in series the bandwidth is extremely greater then, you know, that specialized thing that there's a skill set that becomes more and more efficient. And, you know, with bench press, the skill set of lifting the most is different than a bodybuilding bench press where you're trying to, the big lift is done with the lats and the bodybuilding one is done with the chest. Yeah. So, you know, it, it depends if you're training for carryover, which is what we train for. I could care less about my number in the gym or whatever. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, some, it's nice to do better, of course, and we do. But again, if it's not resulting in me doing anything that I want to do better, well, then I feel like I'm sub-optimizing my time and my effort. To be honest, though, too, the more strong people in specific tasks I talk to, I find them talk more about the variables in their accessory work and that being the thing that hmm. makes them stronger. Interesting. And I think a lot you know what I'm saying? Like the skip, when we're talking about lifts, like it's like other lifts that usually help it. When you're talking about running or something more complex, I'll talk about all the little skill work they did in between to get better, right? But so like I think I think people need to pay more attention to that stuff, those variables and how that provides carryover to maybe the task or the external goal we're after. So power lifter's easy. There's three lifts. So yeah. it's like a nice one to dive into, I think. But then it's easy to think about, but Lifting with a fat grip or just yeah. simple things, like how they do their dumbbell stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and my uh, my little quadrant I had, yeah, with the variability, I was, well, I'll just, I'll just mention that, but I'll, I'll come back to variability quickly because I think it really fits with swinging in particular. But my, my thoughts were those people who can get really strong just by repetition. It's like you have reps, you have variability, you have something that encompasses natural movement, but maybe the natural movement allows for variability too. That's kind of what I was trying to say. And then also you have meaning, like there's a meaning behind it. I'm not just doing this. I am, there is a greater purpose behind this, or maybe I'm doing it with, I'm working with other people and we're all working on this together, stuff like that. I, I think that's like a, something like, even like the rock, I, if it was like, hey, I got a tire in my basement, I'm just going to hit it for two hours. I mean, I, 
sure I'd make some gains for sure without question. But if I'm like, hey, this is my job, like at the end of the day, I did this and there's something that's deeper. I think that sparks even further gains. I was going to say with the, the, the swinging, it makes me think of uh, Nikolai Bernstein in Motor Learning. Like he has the, an- it's like a pretty famous guy with like the anvil. He, it's a blacksmith. And every time he pulls the hammer back a little bit differently. And I think it's like the body's way of trying to not like break yourself because you're doing the same exact thing over and over. And I think about the things you guys are talking about, be it with you know, rocks, sticks, stones, ropes. But I, I feel like the things that are more high force are, are more forceful, are more swinging oriented things. But I, it does make me think about how you can do it's such a gateway to get higher volume in in those because we're like designed and it allows a little, even if it just opens a little degree of freedom, even if you just subtly twist and move a little bit differently, the body can now find ways to continue to work and not overload any specific little line. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, and I think even the science on it is that, you know, the complexity of the signal and the, the you know, the cellular aspect of those little sarcomeres, you know, it never actually wires and sequences exactly the same when you get down to the cellular level so you know there is a little bit of bandwidth even within even the there scene, yeah just from a how much volume of air do you have on this rep versus the mm-hmm. other rep yeah you know, did you blink in between <laughs> like you know all the tiny nuance that you know one would not think matters well the body's going to solve problems and you're going to solve problems by compensating for inefficiency because that's the biggest problem. And we don't want to ingrain poor quality. We want to be able to take different and achieve the same result, which is harnessing the force of gravity with our body's weight to create a ground reaction that is cleanest, that allows us to express the most appropriate output to the circumstance and if we always come back to that as the principle i mean the weck method logo i drew it as okay it starts with gravity here's an up down that's our constant that's our where and it's when center of the earth 9.8 meters per second squared at sea level all right here we go and then the logo turned into this idea of oh i have the horizontal polarity that now i can internal and i can external it to manipulate the central column and then cross torsions in rotation that adds up to everything so that, you know, the logo means up, down, or down, up, and all around. And if as long as we constantly work to do that and funnel force to the floor with the greatest efficiency possible, if you do that and you constantly hone that edge, I believe that provides the strongest foundation for all things. And that's the objective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that fits in with, I had the question, sorry, but the every step stronger idea. And I think that, and I really want to get into um, next, maybe talking about how some of these things progress and manifest in just like physical strength. You could say one at maxes. I think a lot of times people will look at some of the, the fundamentals, like maybe a rope or, or pulsers or things like that and think, oh, that's, how am I going to get, how does this fit with strength? They might think, oh, well, this is something who, something someone who isn't strong would do or so, you know what i'm saying like i i think that those thought process could manifest with people pretty easily so i'd like you guys to talk about maybe starting from the rudimentary pieces and chris you mentioned how those principles helped you to improve your one rep max improve the way you're tensioning your body and and how that increases the output so I, i'd like some yeah three things before yeah. you uh, because this is perfect i feel like you mentioned something already a couple things and the first the first being 
the external goal of what the hell you're doing. Some like, okay. And for us, if there is no external like thought process, I'm just training for training's sake or whatever, it's going to come back to those, those first principle thought processes of like literally locomoting, walking, bipedal mm-hmm. movement. We can just call it that for simplicity. So it would be taking the max effort lifts. I still love benching. I still love squatting. I still love deadlifting. I value those lifts, but it's looking at them with a different light and lens and how can I actually turn those things into something that will carry over to something that's first principle or that external goal walking or running better and then applying that to it all right and that's where we get into like torsional stuff so I know we talked a lot about side bend or anybody that has heard anything about a side bending and coiling and all this stuff and side bending or coiling is a way for us to sort of find or establish this end range of rotation to feel sort of this structural wall that I can lean into in my own body. But it, you can't find it unless you actually have the external goal of like focusing on something, your focal point, your intent, this external task. For athletes, that's the ball, that's the hoop, that's whatever it be. For just an average person, it might literally be looking ahead of you to walk down the street. I mean, you can determine what that is. But once I get my eyes on that, I'm able to really establish and find that end range of rotation or coiled position. I find that on one side, I find it on the other. I make my own internal understanding of it, right? I can find an expression from side to side, which is immediately going to feel like that locomotive feel, that weight shift. So if you're not into head over foot or all this other stuff we're talking about yet, whatever, we know we're shifting weight from one side to the other. I'm after that. And that means I'm side bending a little. Once I have that, I take that information or that feeling and I bring it to center lifts, things that I'm familiar with or people recognize as strength in the training or gym world. And I'm able to try to chase those two feelings, this side and that side. I can never quite find it the same when I'm in the center, but I'm turning these linear thoughts in my head into rotational thoughts. Okay. So all movement for us, everything's rotation. There's no way around it. I don't care if you want power off press, all this stuff where you think you're anti-rotating. You're rotating. There's rotation. There's always rotation. Good luck. It's rotation. You're doing it. It's what you're thinking inside of your own self. It's that internal intent and how you're directing that stuff to what you're trying to actually get out of it. So if I can internalize those positions and go into my max effort lifts and think about what that those feelings were, then I'm able to get a little more out of those lifts. And most of the time, just changing that thought, you're mm-hmm. going to get immediate gains in numbers just because like you're driving it towards something. You're not just lifting the weight to lift the weight. You're driving it to something. And then from that, you'll start recognizing the carryover, which sort of leads to that every step. Tr- we say every step stronger. We also say every step is a rep. Mm-hmm. And because what, what I'm looking for in my clients, athletes, whoever I'm working with myself is that when I get done in my session, the next every step I take outside the gym is still a rep. It's repetition. It's constant. Everything we're doing is volume. I'm accruing volume all day in whatever I do. And if I can internalize and start thinking about that volume being all after one objective, and we'll, we'll say locomotion, bipedal, but really it's those, all those first principle things. We, we believe throwing, swinging, walking, and all forms of locomotion all are interconnected via the trunk like that. So the training needs to carry over to that. And then the way in which I do the training and the volume and the, the frequency and the intensity and maybe the way I'm steering my arms while I'm doing certain lifts 
will give me more optimal carryover to specific tasks. So when you still get into like athletes and things like that, or if I work with somebody in bowls versus somebody that throws a disc in an ultimate frisbee or something, I can be even more specific if I want. But but really, I'm after feeling, feeling, come to the center, maximize that intensity, and and chase those big lifts. Well, and and let me add to that, like I like to reduce it down to yin and yang, right? Just polar opposites, right? And so what we say or what I say for coiling is we want to establish the longest and the strongest differentiation of the sides. And end range of motion is not the fullest range of rotation. In order to create the greatest internal length, that is a spiraling dynamic through the distal extremity. And what I say is when you reach your end range of motion, you never reach end range of intent. And so if I'm to reach my arm as far as I can, I have the longest range of motion, but I don't have internally the longest range of rotation. And everything matters all the way down to the way that you position the bones of your hand. And I happen to have this extraordinary experience of, you know, mailbox money for 20 years and all the wherewithal to study this and my athletic inadequacies, my superpower, because, you know, I'm forced to do it different. If I do it the same, I lose, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So this idea, I was able to take the Taoist acupuncture meridians and equate that to the Western anatomical understanding. So I understand the energetics of how the thumb on the inside is that that needs to be long and the Chinese meridian that happens first is the lung and it comes out and the lung is long Hmm. and then ultimately it roots back through the fourth finger and if you look fascially and structurally the fourth finger is unique in the sense that you can't extend it beyond the the other digits at the base so every other you can flip the bird up high and you can point your finger up high you can lift your pinky high if you're drinking tea but the fourth finger when you put that extensional intent into the fourth finger it funnels you into a spiral that will steer the elbow to the center and so that's how i'm able to now we play push hands which is you know you can't grab and you can't strike. And who's the better man, right? Who can move who? <laughs> and the reason I'm good at it is because I can funnel it to a position of fundamental strength where I could anchor an automobile into my skeleton structure. And now from that destination point, I can guide you there. And if you don't know that game as well as I do, your strength is not productive against my strength. So it's this idea of internal mobility with efficiency to enhance the motility of moving your body through whatever medium or method that you're doing. So mobility is a systemic thing and motility is the output. Yeah, I like that what you were talking about with basically finding tension in your own body. I know Julian Pinot talked about tension over position. And I think that the coil, as you guys are describing, is a way to find tension that fits with how we're designed as human beings. Obviously, we can, I can do a deadlift. Even in a deadlift, there's a very small amount of rotation, not like running, but there's still the tension to be found. But 
I was going to say with Chris, what you were describing and then just what you guys are talking about. Tell me a little bit about like if someone, and obviously ultimately at the end of the day, we want to, many people want to run faster, move better. It is funny, even in the strength and conditioning industry in general, I've seen that shift away from powerlifting into speed and locomotion as, as it should be. But I am curious just on the, just on the scope of strength or just moving better from a, a forceful perspective. What are some key, like if you were going to build up, like Chris, I know you do a lot of deadlifting. If you're going to build up to a heavier tension output based movement, what are some key coiling principles as you described, like the, the feeling, but what are some movements you'd use tools in the toolbox that you would use to get there? The number one move you could kind of just start exploring with our stuff. I really love the Bulgarian split squat, but to do positional work in it. So hold, hold isometrics. And when we refer to coils, we actually have two different ways we look at it. We look at what we call a front side coil. So if you can imagine the split squat, I want you to think of the front leg and getting a side bend over the front leg. That would be what we refer to as a front side coil. That one for us most often has carryover when we're in that position to locomotive stuff like running, things of that nature, right? Okay. And that head over the front leg. In that same split squat, if we sort of shift over to the other side and we're over that back leg or posted over that back leg, you're going to start noticing it looks a little bit like I just hit a home run type feeling. So when we're coiling over that side or the, the back side, we're going to, I look at that as having a lot more carryover for things like swinging. So swinging a bat, swinging a golf club, things of that nature, tennis, you'll probably have both sides. We always have both sides, but you'll kind of look at it that way. So. What I teach a lot of my athletes to do first is to find those two positions. We do long-term isometrics in them. So we'll go there and we'll hold upwards to 90 seconds, maybe 120 seconds in those positions to feel the efficiencies of being fully committed to one or the other. Because you hold a long wall sit or something Mm -hmm. like that, it's tiring. But when you start recognizing you can work with the structure and that funneling of gravity through your structure to the ground with that coil position, all of a sudden, you can hold these postures or positions that would typically be very challenging on the musculature for a long duration. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. And it starts teaching the athlete or the person without me being like, hold it longer, do this, mm-hmm. get in this position. They can start feeling things for themselves and start developing a personal feel and understanding of why the cueing and the positional stuff is so valuable. Once we sort of establish that, I would start adding maybe transitional work to that thought process. Because I think the lunge or split squat is really the best way to start experiencing what we're doing. And I would probably throw them right into like a Bulgarian jump. So we do a Bulgarian split jump. So we jump from that position. When we do this movement, we typically are trying to stay within the same intent or same side coil. So after getting that positional work there, I'm going to hold that feeling in my trunk and I'm going to project myself into the air and jump but I am not going to cycle over and shift my weight like I might do when I actually look them up. So if, if I kind of work on that sort of thing, get it on both sides, then I come out and I do like some sort of alternating jumping, I'm going to be rooting and funneling to the ground more efficiently. I'm going to feel all the benefit of that, that posture, and then I can start loading it and do whatever I want with it. And yeah. once you sort of get that understanding of it and you sort of have that full system of it, you can start applying the same thought process to like, I really think pressing is valuable for this person for this reason. So then I can start doing like cable presses with the same thought. There's a front side, a back side, and then I can take it to the center if I want to move more load or I feel like I can, I want to put more pressure on the, the whole system or structure. 
And then what I would say on that is I want to think predatory, okay? And a predator has to be patient, right? So I need to be in a position where I am poised to pounce when the opportunity presents. And there can be no delay or, and this is the cue that I love, who's going to eat tonight? And if you really boil that down, and then you even take it beyond yourself to your family and your loved ones, who is going to eat tonight? Because eventually, if you're not going to eat tonight, well, guess what? There is no tomorrow. So the intensity of focus and that intent, if you make it predatorial, where I need to find the position that is longest and strongest and most sustainable, that's the foundation and the intent that I want you to build everything upon. And I, the last thing in the world I want to be is prey like stuck in the headlights, you know, <laughs> with no focus at all because it's overwhelming and I'm frozen and now I have to move in order to move. I need to be poised to pounce where I get in that sprung coil and oh baby, when it's ready, I'm ready. So it's that right now readiness and gravity is the where and it's the when. So when we can optimize these sides, you have these destinations that you can go to where when you go there, boom, you bounce out of there, right? So that's, that's how I look at it is I get very primal to survival. <laughs> yeah. if you in, I was an actor, and one of the things they teach you in acting is increase the stakes of the character in the scene. Like there has to be some curve in an arc where, okay, you know, there's some tension built into it. There's a need. There's a need. Okay, great. You either got it or you didn't. You know, if it's just humdrum, nobody cares. Nobody wants to watch it. So I apply that sort of idea. And going back to Adarian Bar, I worked very closely with Adarian for years. And of all the people in the industry who have like this curiosity to explore, I would say that Adarian and myself are, you know, at the top of the list because we both just spend an inordinate amount of time tinkering. And what we had both arrived at back in those years is that the principal need for performance is tensional balance, tensional balance. And the WEC method 45 deadlift stemmed from tensional balance to leverage the power of the heel into the forefoot with the matching spine and shin angle so that everything is vertical in an athletic sense. So that deadlift, which you had the, you know, the insight, the wherewithal to, to recognize because you tried it and you felt it and you had the tensional balance and your work with the Darien Bar has probably yielded insights for you that you're not going to get any other way. Yeah, the that Weck deadlift, I think it was Chris Holder who had used it with, I think it was a Cal Poly, I forget exactly, but he yeah, had gotten that's some- that's exactly right. That's exactly it. He had gotten some great results with the 40-yard dash using that. And it's something that once you, when you do it, and when you also know what a good start feels like, the tension in that Weck 45, and it is bilateral, so it's not 100% the same, but a lot of the tension in that thing is very similar to the same tension you feel coming out of a good start in key areas. And that's one of the really cool things about it. And then when you do like a WEC 45 where you have your knees out and you're on the 
the fourth or fifth metatarsal heads, like just under the ball, the pinky toe, a little inside of it. And then if you do that, and then you go do a normal one, your feet are flat. It's just funny to contrast that feeling because when you go to the normal one with the feet flat, it's like, man, this thing, this just feels, there's less pressure in this and there's more kind of, I, I get it, it's a feeling, so it's hard to describe, but I would invite anyone listening to, uh, I'll put in the show notes, WEC 45 deadlift, do that and then do regular and just feel, notice, just notice the tensioning um, different. I won't put anything else in your head there, but there's a lot to it. has evolved a lot now too. I do what I call a hand card deadlift now. So we wedge on either a bozu or the deck or soul steps or any something that you could block yourself up on and we hook the bar to a pendulum so i use a reverse hyper there's a lot of easier ways to do this but it's just what our setup is i hook the bar to a reverse hyper so i'm learning from my hands i'm not hooking weight pulling me back on my body i'm learning from my hands and that load and when i deadlift i'm at about a 15 maybe 20 degree angle throughout the whole thing so i get a forward intent and i maintain spine shin congruency so i can i can lift a lot of load get a lot of pressure on my system and I can still get closer and closer to that start feeling, maybe, even though it's split, obviously. Yeah. But, but that's something to explore if you haven't gotten played with it yet. Yeah. Funny enough, I, I, I haven't done it with the WEC deck or altering the feet, but I, Katie St. Clair, a biomechanist and trainer, uh, she had mentioned doing even just like where you stagger your feet front to back a little bit. Even doing yeah. that, you notice a really beneficial difference in the tensioning, just where it's just like, the stuff that is slightly, ever so slightly offset even feels better than totally bilateral for whatever reason. And I think it just maybe taps in or you could say spiraling nature. I don't want to, I don't want to get too esoteric with stuff that's hard to really dial down in on exactly what's going on. But I always notice when I program deadlifts now, it's either WEC 45 or it's with a slight stagger the vast majority of the time and very much for this, how it feels. And, and what I would say is the soul steps or the WEC deck, and we're going to call it the VOR Text. Or, sorry, for, for, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't run this show here. But the, the vertex, what we're doing with that unique pitch that that positions the foot in that specific way is now you can align the feet straighter and get a full foot support where you're essentially getting the wet forty five, but you're not having to set it up against the flat where you're manipulating your structure to deal with flat, you're on this pitch where now you get the full foot support where you do not need the heel, which means that you can now use the heel most productively. And I know we wanted to talk about the foot a little bit, so I won't jump the gun, but that sort of, it's such a special pitch that we use it all the time. Yeah, actually, that, that's a good place to go. I, I, it was probably like two points down in my question list so I, and that's something i actually was really interested to ask you because i think the whole inside edge of the foot outside edge of the foot what's better like people always want to say well, what's better <laughs> like which <laughs> as if as if we should just like you know cut off one part of our foot because we don't need it but uh, yeah, i yeah I, I am curious your take on that and i know that like in the wec 40 i'll just prelude this just quickly by the wec 45 the way you feel the tension you're Basically, the ball of the big toe is either gently resting or kind of off the ground. It's most of the pressure is on the outside for that externally rotated entry point to a stride. So, and that feels good. And so, I'm just curious with how you go with that versus more big toe adaptations, inside edge adaptations, thoughts on that balance of things. Well, let's begin just with the structural conversation where the fourth and fifth metatarsals, you know, that link to the fourth and fifth toes. They are what we call the first floor because they route to the calcaneus. 
the the big toe, second toe, and third toe, we call that the second floor because that routes up to the talus. So what we want to do is we want to fully engage and understand the first floor as a priority to set up the, the, the inside for its maximum contribution to finish with the completeness. And so what we'll say is that the, the outside foot is go and the inside foot is go to. So that you want to harmonize the actions of both and the essential pattern of that hip extension flexion is really a figure eight if you look at the way it actually performs in locomotion. So that sequentially you're harnessing the outside, that's your initiation, and you're passing it off to the long side, the go-to, to complete the cycle. And then your work is brilliant in the actual biomechanics of the manner in which that foot is going to rebound off the ground because there's a torsional effect as the center of mass is moving forward and the foot is hit with the external rotation. And as it goes to the inside, that rotational heel coming inward creates that fascial recoil to bounce it back out. And so it's not a twisting stamp the cigarette motion because that keeps you in the same place. And there's a fight and a flight application. So in a fight application, if you want to be a better boxer, big toe pressure to the tip of the big toe creates that flexor halysis longus pressure that serves as an internal pressurizer that helps you with the soleus and the gastroc. And you have instant right now transmission to your retreat or your backward movement. If the big toe is hovering off, you want to go back and there's a delay to get back. And so there is time when I want to pivot on either the green dot or the blue dot. You know, as we would, so the outside, you want to know how to pivot and you want to know how to pivot on the inside but those are more associated with the function of fight where it's swinging and you're coiling and dropping that weight without projecting the center of mass as far forward. And the flight aspect, there really isn't a twisting impetus that you're allowing to happen for any measure of time. Because I want, if I'm on the ground longer, I'm on the ground mm -hmm. longer. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going anywhere, <laughs> right? So I really appreciated the post that you made regarding that foot action. And there are different ways biomechanically to solve the problem. Ricky Henderson and Johan Blake, they don't have that kick out. What they do is that that foot comes off the ground and it instantly springs off medially to deal with that, that torsional mechanism. So not everybody is going to flick that heel out, even though a lot of people do. Second fastest man of all mm -hmm. time doesn't do it. <laughs> and he's not wrong. It's just the way his body works. So this, this idea of, I think what happens is the impetus to make money sort of requires one to present a unique selling proposition of why we do it differently than the guy across the street in our way is better and we've defined it as, okay, well, you know, we do this and this is the only way to do it. Yeah. Well, okay, that 
you know, that that actually isn't true. Let's say God built you with one foot pointing backward. And that's just the way God built you. <laughs> okay, well, now you have a structure that won't allow you to do it the correct way. So now you got to do it your correct way. And everybody's got all their little idiosyncrasies that are going to define what is best for them. So you have the universal principles, and then you have the actual application of the practice based upon you, the individual. And even something like the Fosbury flop, like that is the technique that you got to do. I'm sorry, you just got to. But you can, within that parameter, you can do little nuance different in terms of how you're going to execute the biomechanically superior technique to get over the highest bar. So I, I hope that makes sense to listeners. For me, a lot of that, it has to do with the torsion lines we explore and like Julian plays with. I don't know how much he actually goes into this thought process on it, but I look as the outside as as an external torsion cue. Mm -hmm. The inside as is an internal torsion cue. I have found when load bearing that the inside edge when you're in that internal torsion you need the outside you need structure kind of that thought process so what i see when there's like variability and stuff how i look at it is if there's variability and it's working for somebody they're driving their movement via a certain torsion line and what i see is that you could technically change technique based on whatever torsion line you would want to move through or what might amplify somebody's experience or a different strategy or for like a distance runner or something of that nature, it might be like, I've run internal for this, I run external for that. And I'm able to I'm look at my body as that it, there's more opportunity and strategies I can explore within my own internal mechanism that can create a similar or same result. So, and that would dictate, that's where it really gets into like our programming and stuff is like, I might chase one of those lines to help performance in a certain style of movement on the ground or in the water or in the air. And or we might take a different route just to see if it works different. A lot of that comes from my own felt experience, exploring that and seeing that the routes work or if somebody's open to it, it it's different or can be different. And there are anomalies out there that do it the other way and it works. So, uh, But us as coaches and trainers and performance people, maybe we're not willing to look at that map and see that there are other routes that we could take. And what we're doing here at WebMed is we're trying to create a language to help people explore that thought process and and to do it with that first principle thought process and and educate why they might use the foot different ways and all that things and or prepare people for when their body even changes into a different mechanism how to be ready for that and yeah yeah well and also also i think the strongest case athletically for the inside edge is a wide receiver trying to put a juke hmm. on the bag because I'm forced to now use the inside edge to go the other direction of the inside edge foot. And if I don't create that shin angle, well, then I don't get to juke you. And even the stronger one is the basketball crossover. Yeah. The crossover, if you watch Kobe and Iverson and Michael do that, they use the inside edge where the actual inside of their ankle now touches the floor as the pullback mechanism on the other direction. And the key is that you're not fully weight-bearing on that side yet. So it is a structural advantage to go so far inside edge that now when you bite on that, 
I can now use that adductor force and the grip of that rubber on the wooden floor to boom, to pull me back to the crossover. So if you're going to forbid the inside edge, <laughs> well, okay, there goes wide receivers. There goes anybody trying to cut as opposed to going straight ahead. And locomotion, it's, it's all directions. And forward intent through the foot is what's essential. Even if I want to go backward, it's the forward intent in the foot that allows my body to go backward. If I put the intent backward in the foot, that's back on the heels falling over. So the shin angle and the ankle joint and, and the articulation through the structure of the foot, forward intent through that structure allows you to do all things. So it is forward intent. But even if I want to go backward, it's forward intent through the foot, whilst the rest of the body's intent is going back. And this is a much more complete way to look at it. And, you know, I look at my unique selling proposition is I'm not the top dog. I'm underneath. No matter what you want to do, I want my stuff to help you make your stuff better. So I'm not trying to be on top. I'm trying to be underneath. And so it's a strategic you know, marketing, you know, thing. And I had the time to figure stuff out that someone engaged in daily sessions doesn't have the leeway to even explore. Because, you know, I still have nerve damage in one of my foot that, you know, the experiment that didn't work out quite right. <laughs> I was trying to be like a cat where I was literally on top of and loading the metatarsal heads as opposed to more human where you're, you're, you're you know, creating more tension through the Achilles, as opposed to a ballerina who's up on the toes, I was up on the metatarsals and I was barefoot and I was a staircase involved and like that. <laughs> it sounds like a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a damn good thing. I'm not the strength coach coming in, scratching my head saying, Hey guys, you know, I got a theory here. We're going to test this out. <laughs> and if it works, we're all better. But if it doesn't work, you're all hurt. <laughs> so when David, so David Watt comes in the gym and says, hey, ever take your socks and shoes off. Let's go to the staircase. Maybe I should be a little worried just for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's crippled. <laughs> I like, David, what you're saying, though, I this that resonates with something, um, the go and the go-to. I was just doing some of the gym, oh, a couple things at the gym yesterday. One was um, I was doing, uh, just with like the points of awareness as well, I think so often it's easy to argue, but then it's like, well, hey, get in your own body, feel this, see where the feeling takes you. And one thing I was doing was just basic like calf jumps, little pogos. But as I was doing them, I just went awareness kind of like from the ball, the big toe to the second toe or the, the fourth toe. Sorry, <laughs> I'm going backwards here from the fifth med head to the fourth med head to the middle toe to the second toe to the big toe and then just back. And just as I'm going, I'm feeling my feet twist in and out. And you you literally kind of feel the different things your body or your legs are geared for. And then the second thing I took that into, and people at home could try this if you had two chairs each at your sides. I was using a bar and a half rack that was about waist height. I just held onto the bar and I was just hopping on one leg. And what you do if your foot is right underneath you or even a little bit in front, where's most of the weight if you're going to really hit down hard with the foot? It's going to be more on the outside edge because that fits with the external rotation of the foot for when you land when the foot hits in front of you. But now guess what happens as your foot, so I'm sitting there hopping on one leg, holding on the bar or two chairs. As my foot moves behind my hips, so more towards the back, more towards where it would be toe off, now where can I push down the hardest? The big toe. As the foot moves behind, now that's where the inside edge of the foot's going to be able to 
go its hardest. And it makes me think about, Adarian Barr has talked about this, where uh, if I want to hold on to a movement, do a movement longer, I need to pronate or I need to get to that inside edge. It's like crossing someone over. I need to hang on to this side a little bit longer so I can juke this person out. And I just think these are things that, I guess what I'm saying too, is I think with, with basic like up and down weightlifting movements, it's it's interesting to think about, well, where's the pressure? Because most lifting movements, the foot isn't behind you like when I'm running. So, it's kind of harder to really hit big toe. In many cases, if I'm in uh, like the WEC 45, if I'm in a hex deadlift position and I'm folded over at 90 degrees of hip flexion or whatever, it's pretty easy to find that the biggest pressure point is actually that outside edge and to kind of work with that. All right, here's the pressure point here. As you stand up, might change, you know, so... Yes, and I think what's very important to understand if you're going to really truly get at complete understanding is the embryology involved. So when the, the sperm fertilizes the egg and then, you know, the one turns into the two, the four, the eight, the, you know, and the cascade into blastula and then, you know, eventually when you get to embryo, there's something called the Wolfian Ridge, which is the map through this DNA construction of what defines the front and the back. So ventral and dorsal. And it's the Wolfian ridge about which the limb buds come out. And it's the hands and the feet. So it's not like the arms grow out. It's the hands and feet emerge out of this little, you know, fish reptilian structure. And the feet pop out with the big toe on top And as they extend out through the legs, there's this rotational torsion to the internal so that the big toe or the bottom of the foot is actually the front of your body from a developmental standpoint. And it's torsionally oriented down to the floor, which gives it springiness. So that understanding is like, oh, okay. And what you'll see with a lot of boxers is they're jumping rope, the way that they create the fullest foot support and the most springiness is you pigeon the Mm -hmm. toes. So if I'm just jumping up and down on the pogos, if I pigeon the toes, I am now potentiating that coil further so that I get a longer expression whilst I still capture the outside edge. And so back to this inside edge, outside edge, toes out, toes in, I want all of them. Like, I don't want just one side. If I forbid one side, well, now I, I forbid mm-hmm. the capacity to accomplish more things. And so we live in such a black and white world where, you know, oh, no, you know, it is this and it is mm-hmm. not that. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> and the way that, like, back to this low intensity thing, I have trained my hands to be extremely dangerous striking implements. And The way that I have done it, one of the ways is you have, once you understand the structure, now you have to condition the structure that when it hits, it's fortified. And so what I have done for years is just this little percussion of boning up those bones. And you, in order to accrue the million reps that it takes to create, you know, that intensity of the bone structure is it's just little taps. It's just little taps and every single tap of a bone creates a piezoelectric pulse that now attracts more calcium and it attracts more density into the bones. So if I went like super hard, I'm going to do five sets of five as hard as I can. 
it, you're, now you're not the mason mm. who's lifting up the Belgian blocks all day long that now when you shake a hand 30 years later, it's like, Jesus, that is a man strong that you cannot replicate, <laughs> right? You only earn it. And so that type of idea of intensities, right? Not everything is always to the max and not everything is always to the men. It's, it's this medley of that equation and I remember on one of our previous episodes, I sort of put forth this hypothesis that what if maximum springiness in a body has a lot to do with the bone structure, not just the tensional elements? So people think of bones as rigid. Now, in a life cycle of a human being, they're very rubbery in the beginning and very forgiving. They don't break, they bend. And then as an older person, they're very brittle, so they'll tend to break and not bend. But there's a sweet spot in there where they have the just the perfect Goldilocks, you know, amount of, of rigidity and flexibility that they act as a bow. So if you look at a bow and an arrow, you don't get the power from the tensional element. That essentially is fixed, and there is no appreciable lengthening and contracting of that structure. It is the bow itself that potentiates the power of the bow and the arrow. And I envision like way back when, let's say, you know, you and Og and, you know, the other guys, you, you got a big caribou or something we're going to eat tonight. And now you're harvesting this thing and you take the, you know, the tibialis bone and there's this long tendon from the top to the bottom. And one guy starts to try to pull it off and he notices like, oh, when I pull this, you know, ropey structure, maybe the bone bends just a little bit and it snaps back. Oh, <laughs> let's make one. <laughs> right. So the bone structure is something where, you know, we've been talking about fascia now for a decade or more. And it's really is the future is this fascial understanding. Bill Parisi, Tom Meyer. Well, Tom Myers is sort of godfather for bridging the therapeutic fascia to the performance fascia. The performance guys who have the foresight, like a Bill Parisi, they want to talk to Tom Myers because, okay, if, well, the more we understand the fascia, the more integration we're going to achieve through the body. And that appreciation for the, the contribution of the bones and how can we fortify the bones in terms of the structural integrity of that architecture, the skeleton, that for me is the, it's the skeleton the nervous system and then the nervous system is the fascial system because that's the where most of the receptors are to understand position. So if you look at sort of skeleton, breath, bones, and balance of all the tensional elements is how I reduced it down years and years ago, again, to get underneath the understanding so that now I'm rationalizing the things that I'm doing that are not just immediately obvious on the surface. If it was, you know, the PowerPoint that told me that 19 soccer players did this and now therefore we have to do it this mm -hmm. way. You know, that's a very superficial understanding that doesn't get to the root. Yeah. The, the breath bones imbalance, I, I guess if you were, even if you replace breath with pressure, same thing, there was research done. Yeah. Speaking of 19 soccer players, but someone did like a spring mass model of what if you took the muscles out of the body and, and how fast could, I mean, I don't know how it's going to move, but, if you set the bones in motion or, or the body without muscle mass, it could su supposedly run faster or something like that. Obviously, the locomotion has to come from somewhere. But it does make me think at least about how you talk about the interrelated pieces of this. And especially, too, even like the, the, the value of small movements. And I think of it even 
even something like sprinting, which is, I guess, uh, it's a bigger movement. But even then, you still don't want to hit the ground as hard as you can. Like anyone could sprint and hit the ground harder than they do. That like we talk about, it is important to deliver force to the ground. Absolutely. But, and for some people, it's easier than others to do it in balance. Like, as you said, in balance. But any of us could hit the ground sprinting harder than we currently do if we wanted to for at least a few steps <laughs> and mm-hmm. do it. You're, but actually, I would almost encourage people to do that to see what's really happening. Take a video of yourself. How did the vibrations coming up feel? How did it impact the next step coming through? That's the big one. <laughs> and how did it impact the balance of everything? The body always wants to find a balance of itself. Uh, well, even- and you, you have fast tracks and you have training tracks. So generally speaking, you know, for the fast track, it's a little more firm and the training track is a little softer. And, you know, the Mondo super track is sort of the best of both combined into one. So the resonance of the surface that you're on makes a huge difference into the stimulus you're delivering to the body. So if you're just in slab cement box and you're jumping rope on slab cement, that doesn't give you that vibration and resonance that is in accord with what your body likes best. It's the NBA sprung wood and the dance you know, studio with the sprung wood. Sprung wood is like the greatest training surface that you can do. The problem is it's very expensive. So most people you know, running a gym can't afford it to put any appreciable amount on it. But you can literally pound the power out of your body by resonating on something that doesn't have that just microscopic mm-hmm. yield that's going to be friendlier for the exchange because it's the delivery and then the, the you know, the, what you catch and are able to express from that delivery that matters. So like you said, you can take one side and, you know, hit it too hard. And now you've upset that timing and resilience. So you're actually going slower doing an objective that you thought was what you wanted to do, which maximize force delivery. So output is all, and harmony and balance is always king. I say on the chessboard, balance is the king, strength is the queen, and integration and coordination is all the pieces moving together well. And the priority is the game is over if you don't have it. You can lose your queen. <laughs> you can be weaker. But you can still function. But if you don't have the balance of the coordinate, and balance is just another word to say coordination, and it's task specific. So playing the violin is a balanced medley of the, the right actions, and even more important is the inhibitory or the inhibition of wrong actions. So in a lot, in a lot of sprint training, the skill you develop is the ability to inhibit what is wrong so that you can do what is right. Because you can do what is right without inhibiting that which is wrong and then it's putting a wet blanket on top of the system. Yeah. Just quickly, I, I did want to go back to something with you were talking about, David, with the inside and outside edge in the boxer and the jump rope. It, it, it puts something in my head. I want to mention it before I ask you just a couple more questions. But I worked with an individual who, uh, she was a cross-country runner. This was like a couple of years ago. And she had grown up, I don't think she played many sports, but she grew up doing like jump rope team, basically. I don't know what it was called. But her feet turned in like crazy pigeon toed. It was causing her tons of biomechanical issues in her running. Like that's literally what we were working on. It was fixing the fact that she actually gone too far to the outside or whatever pigeon toedness while she was running. Because like you said, like her end game was jump roping. Like so her body 
obviously didn't have like a ton of muscle mass like her frame her bones everything is going to steer in to be able to deflect the ground and that's that was a well that we were trying to work to get her out of for the sake of her running so she had obviously taken that obviously she wasn't thinking oh i'm gonna just gonna hit on the outside edge and turn my toes it's what her body did you know but uh, that was just someone who had actually taken that that too far and i i do it just constantly makes me think of balance and Let's start with giving you awareness of what you don't have. Let's not force you there. Hey, if you're not on this part very much, let me just show you what that part feels like a little bit more. Let's show you what it feels like to move with that part. Maybe we have some footwear or something like that. And let's start from there, you know, uh, versus like, well, let me make your body like, you know, what I think it should be or something. Yeah, right. But what I would say is that is structure dictates function and function over time transforms structure. So if you've specialized mm-hmm. in a jump rope, you have a biomechanical advantage to be pigeon-toed. And if you've done that a lot, well, now that function has guided the structural transformation over time. And then that structure dictates the function. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, so the structure is this slow transforming thing and the function is contingent upon that structure. So the way to catch the most is to have that bandwidth of not fully specialized in one thing at the expense of what's needed to be specialized in another. Mm-hmm. And it's all choices. You know, if you're a rock climber, the, la- the DIP joint in a rock climber has ossified and, 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 and they can't even straighten their finger anymore because the longest, strongest fascial integration for a rock climber is to get that little bite into the crack and then have the PIP joint be straight so that the fascia, you can hang from the fascia. And that is a specialization to rock climbing. So if you wanted to form a core fist, for example, and your structure doesn't allow you to get straight through the DIP joint, well, now structurally, you can't go there but you're a better rock climber. It makes me think too about just the importance of what you call general physical preparation. Like you're not, you're a jack of all trades for the sense, for the sake of that, but master of none, because as soon as you start going too far, well, that's ultimately your sport. You know, if you're a rock climber, you have to be good at rock climbing, but I think yeah. we just need to, I, I'm curious what every, like every step stronger to you guys is in terms of finding that balance. Like I want you to be a balanced or I'm seeking balance and strength and timing. Could you guys describe a little bit about, maybe it's a broad question, but building every step as a rep in the sense of the body imbalance. Uh, maybe that's the way I want to frame it. So, uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think that like, I, like he said, I say it all my courses, we kind of do the same thing a million different ways. And realistically, we've already kind of talked about this. It's, it's that, let's say I'm working with somebody, a rock climber, I might even say like a grappler or a swimmer or something like that. Or it's just like way out there, you're not thinking maybe stuff. But basically, I'm always, even if I'm trying to get somebody to specialize in something, if that's what pays the bills, that's really what the goal is, then I'm not, I'm always going to have that little healthy dose of medicine of understanding that bipedal locomotion is a prime function of a human being and it has been for many, many, many years. And I'm always going to have little relevancies of it in the training. For most part, that's probably going to be through just positional isometrics. I'll use isometrics just to make sure the person still understands postures and they can do it for duration and they can feel the efficiencies in it. And the duration signifies that basically. And then all of the work and volume and repetition can steer towards the thing that there is relevant to them at the moment. 
So I'm, I'm always going to keep that little dose of it in there. And then as like athlete gets closer to end of career and working with them or whatever, we can start adding more of it in and repetition and volume. And, and you can be coached and determine how much is actually viable without being detrimental to the task at hand, right? Because that jump rope or somebody, if somebody understood or had the thought of that, there was another external goal I needed to make sure you still had. Because if you can't walk or run, there's a good chance you like that's something you're going to do as a human being at some point. <laughs> so even if you love jump roping and if you get hurt in that, guess what you're not going to do anymore? You're not going to jump rope. So there's that level of balance. And this is where I said, I'm always so interested in what like really high level people do in their accessory work or what they think is their off time or something like that, because I've listened and I feel like I've learned that there's a lot of this, like this behavior that tends to go there that steers towards our thought process of locomotion and thought like that, but they're not really thinking of it that way yet. And that's where I think we're trying to create that language in that, that place that all coaches now sort of have that and they can come back and they can do that accessory work that steers people back to just basic human function stuff. And then we can drill into these, these specialties that we have the luxury of being able to do now. Our ancestors did not have the luxury of it. We needed to be yeah. live <laughs> and it demanded certain skill sets. Yeah, so. you weren't doing burpees and push yeah, and, and there you was obviously something some, done. <laughs> yeah, shit was getting done, right? Yeah. That external goal is getting something done. And I need, we need to make sure the gym still has that thought process. And many of us don't have that goal yet. And I think our coaches, our coaching force needs to start understanding that they need to instill that in that person. So that that person takes a little more ownership of their mm. personal practices and us as coaches need to take ownership of our personal practices and and have some sort of extra goal and that builds confidence and why we're there doing what we're doing and it's it goes beyond just that 60 minute session or or the season of prep for something it's it's long lasting we're training we're getting stuff done to make us better people and humans and and at specific tasks too but yeah, and if you got people getting hurt because they're not they're losing basic function, then that's a bummer. That's that's not going to help them in the longevity of an athletic career or just on longevity of life. So. Right, and and what I would say is, I mean, it literally is my mantra: every step stronger. And I'm a big mantra guy, right? Begin with the end in mind. And if you look at one of the greatest ubiquitous maladies for human beings, lower back pain is probably highest on the list. Like who hasn't hurt their back at some <laughs> point in time? And why do people take aspirin? Their feet hurt, their back hurt, their neck hurt, you know, their shoulder hurt, but the back is the central. And if you take, you know, aggregating millions of steps, it's a little drop of water that's an irritant that you don't feel in the moment. And it's the aggregation of the compensatory system or the compensatory reality because you didn't have tensional balance. And my career stemmed from lower back pain. If I didn't have lower back pain, I'd still probably be an actor and I wouldn't have invented the BOSU ball. And what I look at is father time. It's a tide, okay? And in the beginning of your life, you're surfing the wave and you're making forward progress. At the end of your life, you're swimming upstream and father times, you know, jumping on your back. And so what I want to do is I want to crest to the highest possible as I ride the wave of growth and, and you know, positive. But then I want to counter swim 
as elegantly as I can as Father Time starts to say, okay, well, I'm going to take your hormones out. I'm going to take your strength out so that you have the longevity arc of if my body doesn't need to compensate because I'm resolving the forces with every step, the only thing you're going to do more of than walking is breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good the quote. Only thing. I like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So what I <laughs> want to do is I want to remove all inefficiency, and I want all inefficiency gone. Even if you're not going to get there, that's the target. And so like any compensation, if I can whittle it away to less compensation, that's a good thing, and it'll ultimately serve everything that I do. And so you look at back pain as this normal thing because the human being was able to create the creature comforts that didn't require you to move with efficiency. And what I believe is that the creature, the ultimate creature comfort is tensional balance through movement. Because now, and, and if you look at Phil Knight, right? Nike, the shoe dog, he changed the paradigm of running by padding it and making inefficiency more comfortable destroying the biomechanics of billions of people around the world. And I look at myself as, no, I'm beginning with the biomechanics and how can I create something that's going to enhance the innate internal creature comfort, not pad inefficiency to patch the problem. I want to get to the source of the issue. And head over foot is just it's amazing how effective that cue is. And the best way to learn head over foot is find a staircase and just get easy up the stairs. The, you know, if you took, if you look at an uncoordinated person who walking on flat ground is doing it very poorly and you make them walk up a mountain, eventually they're going to get to head over foot. Otherwise they're not going to be able to take the next step. So why not do it correctly or optimally, I should say, on the ground, flat, down, up, don't matter. And what we arrive at here is there's different strategies. We have a same side stride where you can hold the coil and change your weight without having to change the center of mass. And if I have the balance of two on one, and then the balance of two on one, it's like I have four instead of only two. And if I don't need the next one, now I get to position the next one where it can be optimally. But as soon as I need the other one, there's a haste and, and a waste that is just inherent within the system. And if, the keep, if you keep the spine straight, you best be walking on a tightrope because that's head over foot. And if your feet have, you know, if, let's say you hit the with the inside of your foot hits the center line and the other foot hits the center line. So you have this really beautiful gate positioning that you could argue might be theoretically optimal. Not too much, not too little. Then the spine has to coil to transfer that weight most completely and make the most productive exchange through the cycle of outside to inside. And it is the coiling and the rotation that allows you to not change the center of mass whilst you change the arrangement of the whole system. And it's invaluable for fight and flight. You're a fundamentally better athlete if you can have your head outside your foot and your head inside your foot and your head on top of your foot 
And you don't even need your other foot because now you can be in a position where when you drop, you got angled and you can't bring your center of mass to the ground any faster than gravity is going to pull you. You know, an Olympic weightlifter gets to use the, the bar itself to drop under faster than you can go with just gravity. But as a ground-based athlete, your center of mass is going the same speed as everybody else's center of mass. And the only thing you can move faster is your hands and your feet. And getting back to sort of feet, if the upper body is not arranged optimally, I don't care about your feet. Your feet can't figure it out and solve a problem if the upper body is not right. <laughs> it's just feet are irrelevant at that point. Right? Like, there's nothing they can do. So the whole key is get the top and the system in a manner that now you can use the foot most productively. So it again, it's prioritization of proximal with the integration of distal and the understanding that distal has an effect on proximal. And again, back to rope flow. That's the ultimate integration of proximal distal. It's, it's literally the ultimate, and the rope is true. And if it's true, so are you. And it's not going to lie to you. It is what it is. And now with that sort of habituated reflexive reps, like you've ingrained the patterns so there's no thought involved. It's just happening immediately moment to moment. Now you have that cheetah's tail athleticism where just the slightest little thing, you know, at the distal is impacting the proximal to get a better exchange with the ground in that moment. And somebody once asked me at my course, or our course, what would you do for someone who just had spine surgery and they've fused a number of vertebrae together where the last thing you want to do is coil the core in that acute damaged state that you're trying to repair? And what I said is what I would do is I would have them in a position that's comfortable, and now I would start manipulating the hands because just the act of supinating and pronating creates a coil effect through the musculature and the fascia. So even if the skeleton is ramrod straight and you can't do anything about it, you can use the <clears throat> distal to now organize the proximal whilst maintaining you know, the comfort and the safety of whatever your restriction is. And so it really is this both sides utilized approach that it proximals what matters. You can cut off your arms and your legs and you're still alive. <laughs> you cut off the middle and you're dead. So proximal is the priority and we want to integrate complete all the way through distal to create an exchange of inward outward as opposed to just, okay, well, the arms and the hands and the, you know, all the stuff is not organized to be congruent with the entirety of the system doing whatever it wants to do. Yeah, I've I've heard anecdotes from people saying just how helpful some of your methods were for low back issues. And it makes me think about the tensional balance and and you know, with just a couple minutes left, I I had this thought of could you would you guys agree like could you also call coiling or expand that definition to basically achieving tensional balance in all three planes? I mean, basically that would, would you say that's Yes, yes. Poise to pounce. Yeah. I'm not spending effort and energy to be in a position I am, and I am right now ready. Yeah. And if you look at Deion Sanders and Randy Moss, arguably the two best <laughs> athletics at those distal positions of defensive back and wide receiver, neither one of them stretched. 
and they bragged about it. <laughs> you know, Deion Sanders, his quote was, Cheetah, don't stretch. And Randy Moss was standing on the 50-yard line before the game saying, 84, don't stretch on game day. And the guy covering him's over there stretching. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's pretty intimidating. I don't got to stretch because they had such innate tensional balance that they're not overtaxing any particular musculature. They don't get hurt with a non-contact injury because they're – they're organized so well. And so now, and I think of strength and power is just pressure management. Can you funnel the force fluidly through the fascia to the floor? And then it's just bigger muscles are better as long as they're fluid. So the tendency is the guy born with that musculature, that tends to be loose and fluid and supple. And the guy who built himself up there, all that micro trauma to make it bigger, it's just not as fluid. So they can manage pressure, but can't move with the pressure that they're managing versus the natural, more just God gifted athlete has the big belly of the muscle. That is the fluid that, that, that it just bigger is better. <laughs> mm -hmm. As long as it's not restricting you bigger and stronger is better. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no way around that. That is reality. So I think that that's the way that tensional balance way back to those Adarian bar days. That is your priority. And that's what I mean by every step stronger, because you're going to get on the other side of the curve, God willing, you don't die early, where elegance and, and, and efficiency is really the only thing that you got to play the game well with Father Time. Yeah. So just, a, just two last quick questions here. Just got a few minutes left. One would be, and I always think about this level of balance too, is, <laughs> I don't know how to frame this question, but it would almost be like, can you coil too much in the sense of eventually that bandwidth of a full range coil needs to come down? If I'm, let's say, doing a top end speed sprint, I'm still coiling, but it's on a smaller bandwidth than, let's say, I'm doing a lunge with a, where I'm taking everything to its fullest range, if that makes sense. I'm just curious on your thoughts are of working from, like, do you do a session where you work from a lot of large range to small range? Just thoughts on like balance and integration with these things and in the total uh, program. I, I have a programming ratio. I teach our coaches at our seminar. I call it the four to one ratio. And essentially what it means is we perform, let's say squat pattern. I love squat patterning and lunges and things like that. I think it's a great way to feel what we do. Uh, in the four to one ratio, if I took the squat pattern, I would perform a, uh, a split squat on the right, which would be a coil on the right. I would perform a split squat on the left, which would be a coil on the left. I would perform back squats, maybe, which would be bilateral in intent, which would get me some of that center, I think maybe we're talking about here. And then I would perform maybe walking lunges, which would be, get me a right and a left in succession to each other. So what that ratio does, it allows me to establish range of motion, express that range of motion, and then challenge it in like a high intensity pressure system, like performing a heavy lift still. And that ratio, while it's not some end-all, be-all thing, I swear by, you yeah. just fucking do. It's certainly a great way if you're somebody that's only training sort of that standard conventional style of stuff to start a, a, approaching getting more rotational movement thought process in your training because you're going to establish positional work with people. You're going to move through it freely, let them be human, and then you're going to challenge them in some of that conventional lift. So, And what I would add to that is... If you understand Serge Grakovetsky's spinal engine theory and you do an extremely disciplined coil where the sort of the, the horizontal axis that uh, basically will 
will equate with where the ninth rib of the body comes to the side, and it is where it is for everybody. But if you can keep that axis perfectly on plane with no twist, and now it's shoulder down and back, hip up and forward, that's going to get you to the fundamental positions of length and strength where you essentially, as long as that's perfect, you can't overdo it. Does that make sense? If you're hitting it like an isometric and you're feeling everything connected. Yeah, like let's say, let's say you're going to your maximum length on one and your maximum you know, strength on the other, sprung coil mm-hmm. length, and it's an internal maximum, not, not, yeah. not an external range of motion maximum. And as long as you keep that ninth rib on horizontal plane without changing the, you know, the side of your body, you are, you are now creating a constant pivot point for the spinal engine and that shoulder down back hip up forward and then the converse to that is the hip comes down and back and the shoulder comes up and forward and i mean it's but you could overdo water i guess mm-hmm. right so yeah, yeah. <laughs> might, you could might, or you could overdo breathing too i guess if you worked hard right, yeah. <laughs> what we're always after is what is the external goal how do we balance it as best as we can and proving that without losing the first principle thought process the more I've gotten into torsion line and torsion understanding now too, now I got to look at it as like, am I doing too much internal torque, too much external torque, mm-hmm. siphoning in each of those. Like there's more, I can go in this rigmarole of thought on all of this, but it really like, you're just looking to make sure that everybody's feeling good. We're, we're getting a good ratio of rotation to center work. So we're still getting strong, you know, super strong. Strong is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know this podcast. <laughs> You already said it. Yeah, you already said it, so you can say it again. He goes, did I? Oh, shit. (laughs) um, But yeah. yeah. Awesome. Hey, I don't think, well, actually, so like you mentioned black. I was going to say something about, you were talking about the blacksmith earlier. He's swinging on one side. Like he's doing repetitive work that is ultimately getting him paid swinging on one side, but it's probably ultimately making him terrible at moving (laughs) outside of that because he's getting so repetitive or something. So it's always that balance of the sides and yeah. It would be funny to watch a, a blacksmith run who had only hit the hammer with one side, and that was literally all you did your whole life. He's going to run around in circles. He would be excited. I mean, of course, yeah. He's, yeah. he's adapting, especially because that is his day in, day out for years, most likely. Mm-hmm. So that adaptive process on his body, like just changing the structure. So. Yeah, 100%. All right. So last thing, I've seen videos, uh, and, I, and I want one, by the way, too, of this vest with springy pulsar looking things inside of it <laughs> tell me tell me a little bit about that before we get uh, out of here today so, <laughs> I, I wear it all day long every day and because it just makes me 10 pounds heavier roughly you know i think i think it might be 12.5 pounds fully stacked up with 20 cartridges but what it's doing is as soon as i am doing anything dynamic i'm getting a spring action and it's just, it's, it's in accord with your center of mass going down and up. And what you're doing is you're taking the, the 10 pounds, let's just call it, and you are eliminating for all intents and purposes the inertia from that weight. Because on the spring, it's potentiated up at the top. And as soon as you hit the ground, now it's, there's a travel and you don't experience the spike until that moment of transition, the amortization between down and up. So what you're getting with this is you're getting a 
an increased spike in force that is exponential. So a little 10 ounce propulsor moving down and up is going to spike where the 10 pounds is going to become 50 pounds for a millisecond, but then it's going to help you in the upward. So you're getting this tissue development right on the bone structure and the connective tissue and the muscles for that, that peak that then disappears and you're getting the neural benefit of getting used to coming off the ground fast. So when you take it off and you no longer have that weight burden, you feel incredibly light. And I jumped three inches higher from wearing this thing for three weeks. And, you know, I'm on the other side of father time curve here where I'm not jumping as high as I did when I was a younger person. And it starts to become a, a feed forward loop because if you can't jump as high, suddenly jumping is not so much fun. So you don't jump and now you're only jumping lower. And it was such a refreshing breath of, of just like, you know, fountain of youth and fresh air to look up and say, I can touch that. And that's going to be easy as opposed to, oh man, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get there. So I think this thing Oh, I know this thing. It's a game changer in terms of a new stimulus for a plyometric effect that is just going to give a better training response and advantage becomes necessity. So I think it's a game changer and the, you know, them in the hands with this zero to 100 back to zero, but it's actually like a negative zero in the sense that it's now giving you an upward jolt as well. You're putting, you're exposing the body to something that is just, it's more force and power and strength, but it's actually less wear and tear because the amortization now becomes more efficient. Mm -hmm. So there's less micro trauma involved in that exchange. So it's very connective tissue oriented. The musculature, I wouldn't call it isometric, but it's not about the muscle elongating and contracting when on the ground. It's more the muscle belly becomes the fluid medium upon mm -hmm. which that pressurization flows. And now you're able to harness the, the springiness of connective tissue. And I was over at my kid's house last night, as I am every night, and the cat jumped off the mm -hmm. roof. And my daughter was like, oh, Dexter just jumped down off the roof. And I was just like, wouldn't it be fun to be able to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, we're never going to get all the way there, but we want to get closer. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Based on, um, just like we talked about right at the beginning, the feeling, like things that you feel it and then you go and do something with it. And to me, it seems like, I mean, how many things out there where you can, that help you feel what your rib cage is doing? Like we could talk about the rib cage. I love conversations about the rib cage and the pelvis and all these things. But things that, all right, hey, now you're going to have an extra layer of feedback on what this thing is actually doing, the vibration of it, and how does it pair with the other movement. So it sounds awesome, man. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I know it was a little bit of a long show, but we had so many good things to talk about. I have a lot of things to go try out in terms of uh, like getting uh, an integrated, even the balance. I, Chris, I love that, like the balance of, of coiling into the actual progression, things like that, isometrics. So thank you guys so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you. That wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.